0: Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today, and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on Southridgecc.org. So let's get started.
1: Well, this morning, we're actually going to begin a new series on the character of Elijah. Elijah. Uh, he's tucked into the Old Testament, and if you've been with us for a while, uh, you know that we've really been camped out in John's gospel, which is in the New Testament. We've been camped out in there since at least the beginning of September, and so we're kind of switching gears, and we're going to jump back into the Old Testament into this story of a guy named Elijah. And When you look at the Bible, it's rather interesting that about 43 percent of the Bible is narrative. It's storytelling. Often we think of the Bible as primarily giving us these significant instructions. We're told what to do. Here's how to live. Sometimes the acronym of the Bible is, you know, basic instructions before leaving earth. You know, I already don't like that, but I'm just telling you what it is. Um, But actually, that can hardly be the case, even from the fact that 43% of the Bible is narrative. Here's another little fact. 27% of the Bible is poetry. It's poetry. So a fairly significant amount of the Bible isn't simply somebody telling us, giving us commands, giving us instructions. Instead, almost 50% of the Bible is a story. It's kind of odd, isn't it? You know, sometimes in my small mind, I actually look at the Bible and it's a fairly large book and probably in a room like this or online, maybe some of us barely know what the first book of the Bible is or the last book. Remember a while back somebody coming up to me and saying, like, hey, when you say like John, whatever, and then there's a couple of numbers and then a colon and then a couple more numbers, like, what does that mean? And so, so like one of things that passions we have at Southridge is simply to be comfortable with, with everybody, wherever they are in the spectrum of knowing their Bible and the contents of it. You know, whether you know the first book or what the first number stands for, there's a chapter and then there's a colon and a verse and how that works when you look at things up in the Bible. We want to be comfortable with understanding that some of you may have been in church for a very long time and you know who Elijah is. Some of you, maybe the name Elijah is brand new and you have no idea even who he is, where he fits into the story. And so we try as best as we can to kind of wrap our hands around that and walk with one another in learning and understanding what the story of the Bible has. Flannery O'Connor says this, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. I love that. You know, sometimes when I look at that scripture, I think, man, like, why didn't God just give us like a bunch of factual truths about himself? It's so much more easier. Why isn't there an instruction manual? Why isn't, hey, here's a two-page document and get your head wrapped around this and that's all you need to know. God gave us stories very intentionally. We get to see who he is We get to see who we are. We get to see how God actually interacts with human beings that he has made. A story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. And it takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. And so the stories of the Bible, which are, you know, 43% are significant. They shape who we are. They don't necessarily give us these instructions, here's exactly what to do, but they shape who we are. We begin to understand who God is. We begin to understand who we are. Now, if you've been around here, I've mentioned this once before, but, or a couple times actually, sometimes when we read the Bible, whether it's the narrative or poets or or whether it's even instructional, we tend to read it sort of in a post-note kind of way. We find a verse and we kind of stick a post-it note of that verse on our lives. And we kind of get a bunch of post-it notes and we we begin to stick them on us wherever they fit and wherever they kind of like feel good. And and we kind of have a favorite verse here and a favorite verse there, something that inspires us here and something that inspires us there. And we begin to just put post-it notes of those verses on our lives. And and pretty often, maybe after a number of years, we begin to have post-it notes attached to us at different kinds of places. Telling us, okay, here's an inspirational verse. Here's an inspirational thought. We've said before, reading scripture is less like putting post-it notes on you. And it's more like putting your name on a post-it note and putting your name in the Bible. You see, can you feel the difference there? The one is, let me take this favorite passage and stick it to myself. Because it inspires me, it encourages me, I'm drawn to it. It's a little thing that I can't... And I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. We're told to memorize scripture, and I certainly haven't memorized the whole Bible. It's important to memorize verses. So I'm not diminishing memorizing verses and applying verses directly to your life. But what I am saying is this. Sometimes when we only take verses and don't understand those verses in the bigger story... We misapply how scripture fits our lives. And, and so it's less about putting the post-it note on ourselves, and it's more about putting ourselves in the story. It's more about saying, Oh, here's, a, here's an awesome verse in 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19, which is the account of Elijah. It's less about digging a favorite verse out of that, but instead putting ourselves into the story where God is interacting with Elijah and reading ourselves into the story. Does that make sense? It's Hugely, hugely important for how we approach Scripture, that we read ourselves into the story because here's what can happen. If I simply do the Post-it note thing, my story can still be the most important. And so I use God's power to empower my story. I use who God is as a means and a force to energize and empower my agenda because his word is put on my life and my life becomes central. But instead, if we kind of put our names on a post-it note and put our names into the story, then it's God's story that's most important then it's his story. We apply ourselves to his truth rather than applying his truth to my life. You feel that difference? We give ourselves to his truth. We read ourselves into his faithfulness, his story, his trustworthiness, his authority. It's about his story rather than simply taking a truth out of it to somehow empower our individual story. Friends, that makes all the difference. And so when we go into 1 Kings chapter 17-19, through 19, and we go into Elijah, our series is called Elijah. He's a big deal. He's the, he's the character, but he's not the main character. We're going to be talking about that. We look at how God interacts with Elijah, how God interacts with Israel. And as we look at that story, as we look at that account, we learn something of who God is, who we are, how we relate to him, how he relates to us. And their lives become changed. So here we are. Uh, gonna, we'll, you're supposed to have this memorized after the service. Um, so make sure you kind of get that down. M- maybe this is overwhelming. I'm not sure. But at least for me, I'm like a, a, kind of like a big picture kind of guy as well as the details. Uh, but to understand and really appreciate the details, I kind of need to see how they fit in the big story. Uh, it it's kind of drives me crazy when there's a thousand details. I'm like, okay, like, what's the big story? And so this actually goes all the way back to the story that we reviewed when we looked at John. Remember, we talked about creation. That God created Adam and Eve. We talked about separation, that Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We became separated from Him. We talked about redemption when Jesus came to earth. That, that when Jesus came when he was born, it actually separates all of human history between BC before Christ and AD after Christ. Uh, we said that even when you, you know, when you click on your phone, like every, every, every single day when you click on your phone, when you're looking at your computer, the very fact that it's May 8th, 2022, is actually all based on the time that Jesus was born. Like, you can't get away from that. Like, Jesus' birth literally is the foundation for all of dating in human history because it was so climactic in the world. It just complete. actually, even sometimes, they, instead of B.C. and A.D., we say common era and before common era. Well, I don't care what you want. It really doesn't matter to me what you want to call it. It doesn't matter to me. The fact of the matter is still something happened that was worthy of splitting history and all in two. So I'm not really going to argue about the language, but, but we still actually recognize something so dramatic happened here that somehow this is a common area and this is before the common area, but something dramatic happened. So this, that's a big deal. Um, John's gospel, we looked at John's gospel happened right around here. Uh, we said that Jesus was, uh, yeah, he was born in 30 AD. He Jesus died on the cross. Uh, shortly after that was the ascension. He, Pentecost came, Holy Spirit came. And a new creation is actually waiting at the end, the full restoration of all things. Elijah happens before Christ in this section here. Just a couple of key dates for the Old Testament. Number one, Abraham, the story of Abraham, uh God calls Abraham to sort of begin his story of how he's going to redeem, how he's going to bring about redemption, how he's going to bring about new creation. See, the story of Abraham has everything to do with new creation and redemption. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to use you and your seed to bring about my story of redemption and ultimately new creation in the world. That's what he says to Abraham. That happened roughly, and again, these are all very, very rough and round numbers. So, you know, I know they're off by, you know, maybe some of them probably 25 years or so. Not worried about that. Uh, Abraham was roughly 2,000 years before Jesus. In other words, Abraham lived before Jesus about as far as we now live after Jesus. That makes sense? Kind of just helps you to get a little big, big picture of what's happening here. Abraham lived before Jesus about as much as we are now living after Jesus. So obviously this isn't to scale. So just, yeah, hopefully it's okay. Um, Moses and Exodus. In, in uh, Exodus, God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to deliver my people from the land of Egypt. It was a huge, major event in the Old Testament. Happened right around 1450. Uh, there was a number of years here, a lot of, challenging times for the people of Israel. Uh, You may remember the names of Saul, David, and Solomon. Saul was the first king of Israel. Saul was around 1050 BC. So about a thousand years before Jesus, this is where Saul is. Uh, Israel became a kingdom, a nation, uh, eventually, they split into two. Sometimes we talk about that. They split into north and south. Sometimes we call them Israel and Judah. That happened around 950 B- uh, BC. Elijah shows up on the scene to the northern kingdom about 850. So uh, King Ahab, that we're going to be talking about in a little bit, and the prophet Elijah, he comes on the scene roughly around 850. Uh, the kingdoms are divided. It's north and south. Elijah shows up, and there's Ahab. Eventually, the nation of Israel falls in 722. Judah falls in 586. Again, not that you're going to memorize all these details, but you don't need to. I don't feel pressured by that. We'll go over this a couple times. Um, there's exile. The people of Israel are transported off into Assyria. The people of Judah are transferred off into Babylon. So that out of their own countries. About 500 years before the birth of Jesus, they actually return back to the land. Here's a little interesting factoid that, that is helpful just as we read scripture. Uh, these years in here, 400 years before Christ, are often called the 400 silent years. In other words, when you... Come to the end of Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. And then you transition over to Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament. So you say, oh, cool, just like two, two turns of a page. Uh, actually, it's probably about 400 years before the birth of Jesus that Malachi was written. And there's literally about 400 years that happen when you flip in your Bible from Old Testament to New Testament. There's about 400 years that happen there where there's really no written revelation from God. Maybe we'll talk about that a little later on. There's lots of implications about that. Anyway, uh, so we're right here about 850. Again, we'll go over pieces of that in the coming weeks, uh, but it just—it's helpful to know the storyline because 43% of the Bible is a story, and so if 43% of the Bible is a story and a narrative. It's pretty important that we know how that narrative and how that story flows. All right, let's jump into 1 Kings chapter 17. We'll look at a, just a few verses this morning, and. Um, yeah, just pick out a few things. We're going to look at three things. Number one, there's a main character, there's a main response, and then there's a main provider. There's a main character, there's a main response, and then there's a main provider. First uh, Kings chapter 17, verse 1, here's what it says. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Now, we're just going to kind of like go through these characters really quickly and just kind of do a quick survey. Number one, you have Elijah. That's second word in text, right? Now, Elijah. Okay, who's Elijah? We actually don't know a whole lot about who Elijah is. Elijah just kind of bursts onto the scene. In fact, uh, some ancient scholars were uh, almost felt it was so awkward to just have Elijah burst on the scene that they actually created outside of the Bible just some, some uh, legends or narratives about maybe some background for Elijah because the text doesn't give us any. Again, they just that was concocted. It's not in our Bible. It's why it's not in our Bible. Elijah just kind of burst on the scene. Uh, There's going to be a little map on the screens up here. Uh, Elijah was from the area of Tishba, which you can can see the Jordan uh, River there, the Dead Sea in the south, the Sea of Galilee in the north. Remember, we talked in John's Gospel, we talked a lot about the Sea of Galilee. And when we concluded uh, the message series on questions, and we concluded, John, it ended by the Sea of Galilee. That's exactly where Jesus' ministry was. Happened mostly in the region of Galilee. Tishba is actually to the east of the Jordan, kind of up between the Dead Sea in the south and the Sea of Galilee north. That's a little bit of orientation geographically as to where Elijah was from. Uh, now, Elijah's name is actually in Hebrew, Eliahu, Eliyahu. Eliyahu. Uh, we pronounce it in English, Elijah, but in, in uh, Hebrew, it's actually Eliyahu, and his name means Yahweh is my God. Elijah's name itself starts pointing us to the fact that Elijah is not the main character of the story. Elijah's name itself means Yahweh is my God. Yahweh, the personal name of God. We'll get into that one of the weeks. Yahweh with the personal name of God. So Elijah's name itself starts to point us in the direction that he himself is not the main character of the story. There's somebody else that's the main character. Then we run into the guy Ahab. Again, Ahab was uh, reigned around 850 or so. He was one of the kings of Israel. We'll touch in a little bit more of that next week because there's some interesting stuff about Ahab. He becomes a major player. There was 20 kings of Judah. There were 19 kings in Israel. And Ahab was about the seventh king in the nation of Israel in the north. So Ahab shows up on the scene. Uh, We know that Ahab is far from God. He does not obey God. He does not acknowledge Yahweh. Elijah's name is Yahweh is my God. Uh, Ahab, that could not have been said by Ahab. Uh, Ahab was leading Israel in a direction apart from the true God that had called Israel to himself. Also, notice a little bit in, you have the people of Israel themselves. Yeah, the people of Israel themselves. Uh, Israel was a nation that had actually been called specifically by God. Remember we said Israel had been called specifically by God for the purpose of demonstrating the light of who he was in the world. Uh, Israel was not like any other nation. Uh, Israel got their laws specifically from God. Israel actually, as a nation, agreed to be in a covenant with God to have him as their king. So it's totally distinct from any other country in our world ever before or ever since. No, this is not true of any other nation. Israel was the only nation that actually entered into a personal covenant with God where God said to them, look, Israel, You're going to accomplish my special purpose, and because you're going to accomplish my special purpose, I'm going to have a special arrangement in my relationship with you. I'm actually going to be your king. And so that's why, just a small, that's why many of their laws talked about things like righteousness and justice, concerned about the poor, So many times God said to his people, Israel, hey, look, I know the nations around you exploit their enemies, exploit the outsiders. When an alien comes to you, when an outsider comes to you, you're supposed to be kind, gracious, and merciful because you're an outsider and I was kind, gracious, and merciful to you. Friends, that was unheard of in the ancient world. And so God being king of Israel didn't mean he was kind of like squashing them into the dirt. God being king of Israel meant, he said, look, do not exploit the powerless. That was unheard of in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if you had power, you win. If you could dominate, you win. God was saying to the people of Israel, look, you're not to just power up on people. You're to be kind-hearted. In fact, God had specific laws that when you, when you harvest your fields, make sure you leave some behind so that the poor are provided for. That didn't exist in ancient lands. In ancient lands, man, you got every last penny you could out of your harvest. You got every last olive on the olive tree. You got every last grain of wheat in your field. Why? Because it was about you. And God was saying to his people of Israel, look guys, when you glean your field, when you pick your olives, make sure you leave someone, like don't, sh- like he literally says, don't shake the tree too hard. Make sure you leave some because I care about the poor and you're to be my light in this world. And so like the way that you're going to be my light is to care about things that I care about. Well, the reason the whole people of Israel came under the judgment of God, the reason this happened the reason that Israel fell, that Judah fell, the reason that happened is precisely because they didn't follow the God that they covenanted to follow. It's exactly why it happened. In fact, you read Isaiah, Jeremiah, they exploited the poor, the fatherless, the motherless, the widow, the orphan. They took advantage of them they began to be distortions of who God was rather than a picture of who God was. And for that very reason, because they had covenanted with God to follow after him and disobeyed that, they were, he sent them into exile. He said, okay, I got to judge you guys because you know, you're you not my light in this world. You're a picture of who I am. You're not portraying me to this world. You're not a light in the darkness like I designed you to be. So that's Israel. Uh, There's actually another character that we're pointed to that's not explicitly mentioned, but is certainly alluded to and we're intended to pick it up. says this again, 17.1, Now Elijah, we looked at Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead, said to Ahab, we looked at who Ahab was, as the Lord, the God of Israel, we looked at Israel, uh, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. As soon as he says there's going to be neither dew nor rain, we're pointed to another character of the story. And that character is the character of Baal. Uh, Baal was the false god that Elijah and others in Israel were moving toward in worship. And just, again, we're just going to like tip our toe in the water, but this is going to be a major theme. Baal was the Canaanite god of storms and fertility. In the myth of the Ugarit, Baal is described as the one who waters and provides bread and who defeats the forces of death and famine. And so in Elijah says there's not going to be neither dew nor rain. Any person in the ancient world when they read this would at this time would automatically realize, "Ooh, there's going to be neither dew nor rain. That's Baal's turf." Baal is the god of the storms. Baal is the god of fertility. Baal is the god that provides bread. Baal is the God that makes sure there's plenty to eat. And so when Elijah says there's not gonna be neither dew nor rain, right away, we know there's another character involved because this whole thing is a showdown between who's God. Who is provider? Who are we following after? Might say this, who is the source of life? Where does life come from? And so when Elijah says there's not gonna be dew nor rain, That's not just a weather report for the next few years. It's not just a weather report. That's a statement that there's there's going to be a little test here as to who is going to be the real God. Who's the real provider? Who's the one who's truly good? Who's the one who's actually powerful? Who's the one who really belongs on the throne? Friends, this is a direct challenge to God. And then lastly... The last character is actually the main character, and it's the Lord God. Interestingly enough, again, the the next number of chapters are going to be about this character Elijah. But in the first five verses, it's actually the name, the Lord, the name Yahweh, that shows up even more than Elijah's name. Elijah's name you'll read twice in the first five verses. The name, the Lord, you'll read actually three times. The main character of the story is not Elijah, it's not Israel, it's not Baal, it's Yahweh. The main character of this whole story from beginning to end is not your story, it's not my story, it's Yahweh's story. And the writer is just cluing us in when he mentions the name Lord three times in the first five verses. And yet, humanly speaking, say, "Ah, like, oh, it's about Elijah. That's kind of not. It's kind of not. And so the writer is making sure that we know who the main character is. And the main character is the Lord God. And so the main character for us has to be the Lord God. Just a couple things. And we won't take much time to do this. Just a couple things. Friends, the fact that the main character is the Lord. I mean, we could spend the whole rest of our series just diving into what that looks like. But one of the things that it certainly means is this. The fact that God is the main character means that we rest in the main character and we don't rest in ourselves. Here's what's happening in our culture. And I want you to kind of like, like take this apart with me just for a second. Here's what happens in our culture. Did you realize that what's happening now in our culture is that there is a clamor to make sure or to enforce uh, whose tribe is the main character? The reason there, there's anger in our culture today, there's, the reason there's anger in my life, the reason there's anger in your life, what creates the anger? What creates the anger is when somebody crosses the fact that I want to be the main character. That's where anger comes from. That's why we build tribes. Because if I can build a tribe, and I can enforce that my tribe is the main character... And I'll enforce that by making sure that anybody who violates this main character pays because they become the target of violence. They become the target of volatility. They become the target of anger. We protect with the main character through our anger. And here's the deal. Anger will not go away until the main character is the right character. In fact, I would say I would say this to you. You wanna do a little test in your life? Figure out where you get angry in a self-centered way, and you'll figure out you're the main character. Where you're the main character of your life. Do a little diagnosis in your life, and wherever you get angry in a self-centered, proud, I mean, like I'll stuff them, I'll put them in their place, I'll make sure they know the truth. Anywhere that you do that, it identifies that you're the main character. The reason we have tribalism and this animosity and violence and antagonism in our world is precisely because we want to protect our tribe and we want to make sure that our tribe is recognized by everyone as we're the main character. And if you don't recognize that my tribe is the main character, I become angry. When you trample on my main character, anger erupts. When you trample on my main character, hostility breaks open. It's the main character, which simply means this. As followers of Jesus, friends, we should be a picture of joy and peace and love and graciousness to all people. I'm always amazed at stories of those who are persecuted for Christ, who suffer, and they have joy. And they love those who, think about Jesus. What were his words? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Why could Jesus have peace, joy, and love for those who trampled on him? It's precisely because he said, the father's the main character, not me. Friends, that's transformational. I know that every time my life erupts and self-centered anger, or even, a, even if a tribe erupts in self-centered anger, I know that the problem is the main character is wrong. That's the main character. Just two small things, and we'll kind of uh, get the rest of it ne- next week. There's a main character. There's a main response. There's a main response. Here's the response of Elijah. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. You will find drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Verse 3, verse 5, so he did what the Lord had told him. Don't you love that? Man, it seems so easy, doesn't it? Elijah's not, we're not supposed to be Elijah, but here's the deal. When God spoke, Elijah did it. And, and here's the thing that I find even more difficult and probably more challenging is simply this. Elijah did it. And we know, from, we know from the big story and kind of looking ahead, we know that in chapter 18, verse 1, it actually mentions about a three-year period. It actually says after a long time. So, you know, we flip the page from chapter 17 to chapter 18 and we get there like that. Uh, that's actually about a three-year window. Uh, Just get a hold of this for a second. You think Elijah felt like he was on a shelf for three years? One thing that drives me nuts about God is that he's very inefficient according to my standards. Like he is, right? He's very inefficient. He's like, man, if you've got a guy like Elijah, for goodness, for, for God's sake, use him for three years right? Like, for God's sake, use the guy. Elijah's hanging out by a brook. He's also, uh, is provided for by a widow. We'll find out that ne- next week. He's provided for by, but I'm kind of like, maybe, like, I'd sit by a brook for a day, right? Like a day, like stretch it out, you know, maybe, maybe a little longer. Elijah's there for years, friends, or by the brook, a combination of being by the brook and, and being provided for by this woman, this woman. But his response is, yeah, like, I'll do it. Just lastly, and again, we're kind of like flying through stuff that we'll look at more later on. The main character, the main response. Lastly, the main provider. The main provider. God says, Elijah, be by the brook. You'll drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. Verse 6, the ravens brought him bread and Brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So we're going to get into today, except for this. When Elijah is drinking and eating by the brook, it actually says he had meat, he had bread, he had drink. It actually points us to the main character. That there's a greater provision coming. That Elijah is by this brook and he's, he's drinking water. And it reminds us of John 4 where Jesus says to a Samaritan woman, I'm the living water. He's given meat and bread in morning and evening. By the way, uh, most kings of that era would only eat meat once a day. It was a highly luxurious item. And so when it says that he was given bread and meat in the morning and evening, we're led right into, we're led right away into understanding, wow, like God's provision here is going to be, this is abundant provision. This isn't skimpy provision. This is abundant. Reminds us of Jesus saying, I am the bread. We're going to enter into a time of communion to just close out this first week. It's going to launch us into the series where Elijah is not the main character, but the main character is Yahweh. The main character is the God who provides. The main character is the one who gives us bread, whose life is living water to us. And so we're going to, begin our series by remembering that God's the main character. That we're not self-providers. But that we're provided for abundantly through the cross. If you're not familiar with how communion works here at Southridge, we take a, a cup of grape juice that reminds us Of Jesus shed blood. We take a wafer that reminds us of his broken body. It's not important for you to be a member of Southridge to do this, but but what this is, it's a remembrance that our Savior is the source of our life. And so we do ask that you have embraced Jesus as the source of your life. Have you embraced His forgiveness? that you have life through him. If you've never done that, now might be a a great time. I'll dismiss you actually in sections to get up and take it. Um, Why don't we have this section here and the section over here to my far left. Uh, If you guys want to get up, go to the stations. um, Take a cup of juice, a wafer back with you. All of the wafers are gluten-free. If you have any um, issues with that, they're all gluten-free. Feel free to take pre-packaged if you would like. Uh, Take that back to your seat if you would like. Um, If you prefer the open cups with juice, with the bread, there's stations up here in the front. There's some in the balcony at each corner of the front of the balcony. Uh, Stand up wherever you are. You know, we realize, too, that there's a little bit of bustling and stuff when we do this, but it's kind of a beautiful thing. As we move toward the one who's the bread. As we move toward the one who's the life. Dismiss the other two sections. Here's the deal, friends. When we take communion, we remember that we're not the main character. Just say it again you are not the main character. I am not the main character. Yahweh is the main character. And here's the deal that should freak you out that there's an all powerful God that's the main character. Because that character has an absolute right to authoritatively squash you. He just does. The main character is holy and righteous. And he's got a real legitimate reason to use his authoritative power to squash you. What does the main character do? the main character squashes himself. The main character has every right to crush you. Every right. You don't measure up to the main character. But the beauty of the gospel is that instead of the main character crushing you, The main character is crushed for you. The main character becomes crushed so that you can live. Just take the wafer and juice together. stand and sing this last song reminds us of the main character of Jesus he's the cornerstone is another way of saying that he's the foundation, he's the head, he's the main character who becomes crushed for us sing the song
0: My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest friend. Savior's love Through the storm
1: God, you are the main character. We are not. You are faithful. You are trustworthy. You are righteous. You are kind. You are loving. We are not. Thank you that the main story is about you. Thank you that you, as the main character, carry the weight of the story. We can rest because the story belongs to you. Thank you that instead of crushing us, you crushed yourself. May we sit by the brook and may you be our living water. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, who gave himself for us, who is the chief cornerstone. And everyone who agreed said, amen. amen. Prayer team is down here to the right. Make sure you get a carnation when you leave. Happy Mother's Day and God bless.